We are in our second week of our Lenten uh, series on the practice of reading Scripture formationally. And uh, this morning I want to do a deeper dive on something that I touched on last week, this idea of the, the heart posture when it comes to reading Scripture for formation as opposed to simply reading it for information. What does it mean to approach this library of writings as Scripture, as God's speech to us? You wake up in the morning, you make a pour over of your favorite coffee, you read the Psalms, and then what? Next week, Mike is going to preach on meditation literature, on the Bible as meditation literature, and how the tradition of both the Old and the New Testaments is, is different than Eastern forms of meditation, which is about kind of emptying the mind of all conscious thought, is, but is instead about filling your mind with, with God's thoughts, with God's communication, and that stillness of the soul that allows you to be open to God's communication to you and God's presence in the world. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes you read the Bible and something hits you right away. You think about it all day. It seizes you. Other times it's like how the uh, biblical scholar Esau Macaulay describes it. Is you have to take on the posture of Jacob. You have to wrestle the text to the ground in order to get a blessing out of it. Either way, it's close to what Jesus describes as a posture of abiding or remaining in him. And with that, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus is with his disciples, and he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory. That you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask by the power of your Spirit that these would not simply be words on a page, but your word to us, alive and active. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Jill and I went out on our first date uh, two weeks before I moved 2,000 miles away from my home in Southern California to central New Jersey. We were in that kind of saccharine phase of our relationship at that point where like I thought about her constantly, uh, where we would call each other all the time to catch up and talk with, because every new conversation was a, a new discovery about something more wonderful, more amazing than before. If you've ever been in love, you know that phase of the relationship, you know how like it makes everybody else feel about you. And that's the phase that we were in when I started driving out to seminary. I had a lot of time in my hands on the way out there. I was thinking about her all the time, but I could not always call. Now, for those of you who are millennials or who are Gen Zers in the room, you may not know that there used to be a thing called roaming charges. Now, the thing about roaming charges was that you would have to pay more if you were out of your carrier's, you know, tower range. Like, this was the absolute dark ages. I don't know how we survived. And so to avoid that, while I was out on these rural stretches of road, I would record all of my thoughts on one of these. Yeah? Exactly. I would mail a mini cassette tape and an identical recorder to Jill so she could record her thoughts and send them back to me. When we ran out of things to talk about, uh, we would read short stories. In fact, fun fact, our son's name is Graham because one of the short stories we would read was a collection by Graham Greene. She would read poetry, we would send them back and forth just so we could hear the other's voice. And when we weren't doing that, we were sending you know, each other handwritten letters. You know how it is like when you receive a letter from somebody who you are deeply connected to. You, you, you don't just tear it open in the mail room you, in front of you know, all of everybody to be around. No, you go into your room, you close the door, you get comfortable. Maybe you light a candle. I don't know. I mean, not that I did that. I'm just saying maybe some people do that. You get into a place where you can enter into the world of the letter. And you don't rush through it. You prepare yourself to read because you want to spend all of your attention there. You want to savor every word, every phrase. This was the first six months of our relationship. We were distant from each other. It was not based on proximity, but we were sustained in our relationship by the spoken and by the written word. Now, we were sending these letters back and forth all the time that this was happening. I was encountering other kinds of words all the time. I just started my theological training. Uh, my list of texts that I was reading was exhaustive. It was all about systematics and Bible studies and philosophy and hermeneutical theory and all that stuff. There were lectures, there were classes, there were precepts, and my job was to grasp all of those words, to synthesize all of that information, to process it and do something with it, usually in the form of, you know, like an exam or a term paper or something like that. The goal was to get as much of that information as possible, to integrate it as quickly as possible, and to do something with it. Now, those are two very types of orientations 
to words. Two different ways of coming at the spoken and the written word. In the case of Jill's letters and recordings, the words were a means of building a relationship. In the case of the lectures and the books, the words were a means of gathering information to think about the world. And I want to stress that both of these kinds of reading are super important. And when it comes to the Bible, we encounter both kinds of reading. Thomas Merton was a 20th century mystic. He was living out this storyline of success and wealth as a financier in Wall Street. And then he had this radical conversion that led him into taking vows into a Trappist monastery. And he eventually would become a great writer of the spiritual life. If you want to hear about that conversion experience, he wrote a book called The Seven Story Mountain. It's great. But in a little book called Opening the Bible, he describes how it's not one or the other of these two approaches to reading scripture. When we come to the Bible, if we're going to come to it fully, we need both. He writes, an adequate grasp of the scriptures requires two levels of understanding. First, a preliminary unraveling of the meaning of the texts themselves, which is mainly a matter of knowledge acquired by study. Then, a deeper level, a living insight which grows out of the personal involvement and relatedness. Only on this second level is the Bible really grasped. John Calvin said something similar. He compared the practices of study and meditation to the body's natural rhythm of inhalation and exhalation. Both are needed to live. And for most of us, particularly those of us who were raised in the evangelical stream of churches shaped by the Protestant Reformation, we tend to gravitate more toward one over the other. We tend to gravitate toward this informational mode of reading and this way of being and doing. We are taught from a very early age to seek information out, to process that information, to get the meaning of it. And then to apply that information toward some end so that we can function effectively in the world. We live in what has been called the information age where those who get ahead are the ones who can synthesize and process and, and gain access to information most quickly and then use that information to do whatever it is that needs to be done. And I noticed this, there's a major difference you know, between the way that my kids were taught to function in school and the, and the use of all the tools they have to gain access to information uh, because the world is, is totally different now. Like I was like, I came of age just as the internet was like a thing. And this isn't like a grouchy, like back in my day we read books, you know, kind of rant. I'm not going to go there. It's just about how, you know, as our society, as our culture evolves, facility in finding information is what gets you noticed. It's what gets you promoted. It's how our whole economy works right now. STEM is the thing. And the goal of reading in this kind of way of that, our, that our culture is being shaped right now is to master a subject, to get our minds around it, to know what it is so that we can use it to suit whatever need we might have. And to be sure, there is a place for this when it comes to reading Scripture. I want to be clear that reading for information is a part of the deal that we do. It's part of the process. 
Uh, in fact, our practice in the community guide this week is this uh, aim uh, or this approach of studying scripture that allows us to understand the text on its own terms. Because you cannot get to that second level, the deeper level, without understanding what it is that is before you. The reformers used to say, we have to understand what it meant to them, them being the people who wrote the texts, before we can understand what it means for us. So we study the Bible so that we can know the meaning, the cultural context, the subtleties of language, the history of the scriptures, so that we can understand what it is that God has actually put before us. We study the Bible in order to see the, the whole arc and the purpose of God's grace told over the whole story from Genesis to Revelation of how God's mercy and God's compassion culminate in the person of Jesus and then are embodied in his people out in the world. We study to know what it is that we are reading. See, because what we call the Bible is not a book per se, it is an actually an anthology of writings. Scripture is actually a library. It has all kinds of different uh, kinds of literature within it, multiple genres. This is a little pie chart just to give you a, a sense of what some of that looks like. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's didactic, there's apocalyptic, there's, there's teaching, there's letters. You read each genre on its own terms. Uh, in our community group this week, one of the members made the comment that how, how lovely it is that part of God's intention in communicating to us was to include the poetry of the Psalms, that God wants us to have poetry, the, the full range of human emotions that are available in poetry and in songs. This is how God communicates to us. I mean, you listen to a song, you, you, you read a poem, and you don't just think something. You're made to feel something. And that's part of how God wants to come at us. And the point of that is that you read each genre differently. Uh, they, each genre has its own rules for how you engage it. You don't read a book on quantum mechanics the same way you would read you know, Crime and Punishment. You don't read a newspaper the way that you would read a piece of poetry. You don't practice Lectio Divina on an Instagram post. So the question that a lot of people want to jump to when it comes to reading the Bible, you know, is do I read this literally? And actually that's, that's not a very helpful question always because it's, it's, there's a question before that. And the question is, well, which genre am I reading? When Isaiah, for instance, talks about how the Messiah comes and when he comes, the, the trees of the fields will clap their hands. He's not being literal. He's not envisioning some sort of like Lord of the Rings type scenario where the trees get up and start walking around, right? This is metaphoric. This is, you know, poetic language describing how on some deep level, when renewal comes, it will be felt even in the deepest levels of creation. So God uses these conventions of multiple types of genre because human experience does not fit neatly into one category. The Bible is mostly narrative. It's mostly a story that unfolds. A lot of times we want to come at it as though it is a set of rules and regulations and to be sure there's a lot of stuff in there about what to do and what not to do. 
But those sections of the law that describe what to do, what not to do, they cannot be pulled apart from, and they often are in service to the larger story that is unfolding around it. And so, when, you know, and oftentimes when we teach kids, we, we want to reduce the, the stories to some little simple moralistic lesson, like, you know, David and Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den, right? I mean, the great, great stories can't be reduced to a small, single moral. They're complicated. There's lots of different parts to them. Even those stories take place within a larger narrative. I mean, imagine if you were to try to reduce something like Moby Dick, to a single moral lesson. Lonely sailor teams up with a Polynesian guy. They go on an adventure with a maniac sea captain, hell-bent on showing a giant whale what's what. Everyone dies, except the sailor, because come on, man, it's a freaking giant monster whale. What's the moral of the story? Like, don't be that dude. You can't reduce literature to a single point. Narrative can't be reduced to just a moral principle. It's by its very nature. It's expansive. It invites you into the story. It does something to you as you read it. It enriches your soul as you read and as you consider. And that is what the Bible is primarily. Over 50% of it is a story. So what does it mean that God's primary means of self-disclosure is through a story, through a story about who God is, through a story about who we are, about how we interact with those two things, how we live in the reality of who God is and who we are. So we study the Bible to know what it is that we're reading so that we know that when we gather the information and when we can let the story shape our horizons and define our boundaries. And again, you know, if you grew up in the church or you were involved in uh, college ministry like InterVarsity, like I was, study is one of those very first practices that you learn. And for a lot of us, it's the only orientation that we've ever learned about how to come to the Bible, that it's a book to be analyzed and understood. And part of the impulse behind that is to place a, a high view on orthodoxy, on right belief, uh, on this idea that if we, if we know what the Bible says, if we get its meaning, then right action or orthopraxy will follow right after that. But then, you know, you'll live a little while and you realize, I might know all kinds of right things, but I am a walking contradiction. I do not always, you know, do what I know. I'm not always shaped so much by my rational beliefs as it is that my beliefs are shaped by my desires. And that's why we need a second way of coming to the scripture. We need to learn how to read it, to allow it to shape us, to form us. Meditation is, is way more about internalizing God's word of grace to us. Let's go ahead and uh, I'm going to become a Baptist preacher for the rest of our time together. Where was I? 
Meditation, that's right. Meditation is way more about internalizing, you know, God's grace to us, the word of God's grace. You read the scriptures, you come to them slowly and deliberately. They become a means of grace through which you encounter the living God who shapes us into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. Because simply understanding the Bible is not the end game. What do we do once we understand That's the real question. Thomas Burton says that this way of reading, reading for understanding, is like an invitation to sit on the front porch of someone's home. The real invitation is to come inside, to make yourself at home. That's when you really get to know someone. And the thing about understanding the Bible is that it's not as easy as you might think. It's it's a way more complicated book than it appears. In her book, Soul Feast, Marjorie Thompson gives this analogy that I love. She writes, Scripture has been compared to a lake whose depths have never fully been plumbed. On the surface, it looks like any other lake. That is, we see human words like those in other books. But when we jump into the lake and we begin to swim downward, we may be unable to find the bottom. It is as if those human words become transparent to some mysterious and infinite depth that we can never fully grasp. The psalmist says that those who meditate upon the scriptures are like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season. Their leaves do not wither and all that they do, they prosper. A tree that is planted doesn't produce fruit from a surface level engagement with the water, with the soil. No, it grows deep roots. And no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you draw your vitality from somewhere. And wherever it is that you think that you have found life, when you stray from that, from that source, you, you notice it in your body, in your, in your life, that things are off kilter And so we tend to not stray too far from the source of where we think we are going to gain life. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we draw our life from him, from being in relationship with him. He is our our joy. He's our hope. He's the reason we, we gather, the reason we sing, the thing that keeps us going when we are weary. And throughout the ages, the primary way that we know Jesus is through this second level of reading, this this level of drawing near to him in scripture. And those of us who, who, are, who follow Jesus, we are nourished by scripture the way that the body is nourished by food. And that's why John's words to us from, in, in Jesus are, are, are so important. When he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. So one way to think about the disciplines of study and meditation is that we read in order to remain with Jesus, in order to be present to Jesus. This word remain gets uh, repeated 11 times in 11 verses. And so, you know, on a very surface level, that just means pay attention to what is going on here. In the original language, this word is meno. And it means to stick with something. It means to be uh, planted, firmly rooted inside of it. 
To go back to the example at the beginning, it's reading a letter from a loved one. And the way that that letter stays with you long after you have put it down. Uh, when we were dating, uh, Jill got off work at 10 o'clock in California. So that was 1 o'clock in New Jersey. I had an 8 a.m. class the, the next day, but we would talk on the phone because I just needed to hear her voice. I would show up like wrecked for my 8 a.m. Old Testament exegesis class, but I'd have this goofy grin on my face. I'd be like, man, I didn't get any sleep, but life is so good right now. Because that's what it means to, to, to remain. We read for formation as a means of being continually present with Jesus, to let his words be in us long after the fact. And the thing is, like I said, this is a totally different way of reading than we're accustomed to. We're used to just, you know, reading on the surface, like a jet ski on the cover of a lake, when the invitation is to swim down into the depths. We read to draw near to Jesus, to become like him, so that we can live his image out into the world. And that is the second way of reading. To be with Jesus, to abide in him, to set our fears, our anxieties before him, to to let him show us where he is in the midst of those things. We read in order to meet him in the words. And what is the end that Jesus has in mind? It's not to pass a test. It's not to check a box on your YouVersion Bible app, although it feels good to do that. It is to become a person of love and joy. That is the measure of our spiritual vitality. So what would happen if, as you were reading, you found yourself really you know, struck by a phrase in the middle of the second verse that you were reading, and you found yourself in a holding pattern because this word that you read, and you had an encounter with God through it, and, and it wouldn't let you go. Would you try to just white-knuckle it through and push through to the end? What if you weren't concerned about getting through the whole passage because Jesus was calling you to stay put right there? What if it ended up taking you an entire week to read a single passage? Because the point isn't to get through. The point is to meet Jesus in the text. The point is to learn how to abide in him. And I know some of you are like super high achievers. You like, you know, reading plans. You like goals. You like checking the box. You, you like sticking to the plan. I know who you are. You've got to get through the assigned passage for the day. You're probably like me. You find yourself, you know, thumbing through how many pages do I have left in this book to, to figure out to the end of it or checking on your Kindle. Two hours and 56 minutes to the end of the chapter. I can knock that out. Then after you, you know, get to the end of the chapter, you think, I might have missed a few things in there. I need to go back and maybe slow down. It's not even about the physical practice in and of itself. It's about uh, how the Spirit is shaping you through it. We read as a means of abiding with Jesus. When we do that, we allow the Scriptures to open up depths and dimensions to this place where you begin to, to feel, where the Spirit begins to pry open the pieces of your life to address you in the places you barely have time to acknowledge. We read the Bible, and then the Bible starts to read us. And that is when things begin to shift 
To use Jesus' image, that is when the gardener starts to get at the work of pruning us. And I know some of you are thinking, like, with all that I've got going on right now, I don't even know if I can read, like, a single passage. Okay. How about a single word? How about just the word, remain? If that's where you are, maybe the invitation to move from the front porch into the living room is simply to remain. But it's only in the home that you will find your rest. Jesus finishes this image with his disciples by telling them this. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and will remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. The invitation to study and meditation is the invitation to sit with Jesus, to draw near to the place where we find life, to let his life take root in us so that we can bear fruit. And here's the thing that I want you to know. Jesus isn't calling you to rush through to this this place of remaining in him so that you can get to the place of bearing fruit. He wants your doing to come out of your being. He wants you to find a home with him. And so that's the invitation to remain. The only way that you'll bear fruit in the days ahead is to remain in him through spending time in his word, through his words, through reading the scriptures and letting them read you. And as you do that this week, I want to encourage you as you read to have this question, God, what are you seeking to say to me here? And allow those words to remain. This is what the philosopher Kierkegaard called the silent surrendering of everything to God that is prayer to allow the voice of the beloved to stay with you long after the letter is put down to be the source of water that you swim in that you never touch the bottom of ultimately that will be the place from which you bear fruit for others and where you will find deep and abiding joy let us pray Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us this collection of writings by which we may know you and know ourselves and know how it is that we are to live out your story in this world. God, we pray that as we uh, read, as we encounter your word and your words in the weeks leading up to Easter, that we would not only be transformed by this story, but that we would find our place in it. That we would know you. Father, we submit our lives to you as a vine that is about to be dressed by a gardener. God, we do that in the trust that you will bring beautiful things out of us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.